and you know, for like a good you know number of years, I was purely a franchisee. I'm now we're a very large franchisee on behalf of our investors, but I was just a franchisee, and I say it just like that. I was just a franchisee, right? So I go to cocktail parties, and you've got lawyers and doctors and you know scientists and. They're like, what are you? And I'm like, I'm, I'm a franchisee. And, and I like that. But they're like, oh, weird. Now let's go to the other side of the room from this guy. Right. So it does have like, you know, you're kind of feel like at some point you're like the guy with toilet paper on your shoe to some degree. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, it's The Wolf. Today on the show, we have Chris Kenny, co-founder and managing partner of Level 5 Capital. Level 5 Capital is a private equity firm that's currently invested in and working with some of the fastest growing and most innovative brands in franchising. Their model is twofold. Not only do they take equity in the franchisor, but they also build numerous locations as franchisees. Chris takes us through his journey into franchising which started around the time of the great financial crisis and how that experience morphed into what is Level 5 today, a private equity firm with over 300 million in assets under management. Enjoy the conversation. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by the Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek, and Wolfpack franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. Great customer experience starts with great employee experience. Create business success with Harry, the platform to build, manage, engage, and retain your team. Care for your people and they will care for your customers. Visit harry.com today. That's H-A-R-R-I.com. I think before we kind of dive into your journey into franchising, you know, I've known of Level 5 Capital for a little while now, and I think it's a super unique model that you guys have. So before we kind of dive into your history, can you just give us a primer on what is L5? How do you work with franchises and even, you know, simultaneously with franchisees? Yeah. So Level 5 is a private equity firm based out of Atlanta, Georgia. We um, consider ourselves operators in private equity clothing, kind of like, you know, wolves in sheep's clothing, right? We're actually business operators at our core. We're super curious people. We are financial engineers. Sure, you know, there are legal structures and, you know, funds that have to be deployed and whatnot, but our really our secret sauce is our approach to how we find, how we you know, partner and strategize and then ultimately scale, uh, scale being the really the hardest part, incredible unit models partnered with great founders. And so we bring a, you know, pretty unique approach where, you know, we have a classic or traditional private equity team that, you know, helps us actually, you know, do a deal, right. And work with institutional investors to bring, you know, significant capital to bear against great concepts. But then we also have, you know, an operating playbook and operating experts, you know, full-time personnel in-house that help us advance core areas of our investments businesses that we see as, you know, necessary ingredients that founders don't have the same capabilities or experience in, but are necessary for growth. And how we got to here in that model 
is just a constant evolution from our entry into franchising. Amazing. Yeah. And and today, how many brands, I guess, have you worked with and are currently like working with within the L5 portfolio? Yeah, we've worked with eight brands total and we have seven today. So we're fully exited from Core Power Yoga, which was a long, great journey and, you know, still personal habit of mine. And then the rest of our brands, we still have some interest in. And so, but when we say we have seven brands we're invested in, you know, typically our brands come with a brand investment, a franchisor investment and an anchor franchisee investment. So we're actually managing more like 13 investments. It's a pretty full work week. <laughs> definitely. Um, yeah, I definitely want to get into deeper, like kind of the, the anchor franchisee model and how that works. Before doing that, though, I mean, are you the sole founder of L5 or a co-founder? No, I'm, I'm a co-founder. Um, okay. I founded the business with uh, my partner, Charles Myers. Okay. And he and I have known each other for over 20 years, going back to level three communications, which, you know, we're not great namers of holding companies. So we, we <laughs> met a big telecommunications company called level three and we made an, our first investment and we needed a holding company. So we called it level four yoga. It was into core power yoga. And then when things went well there, we said, Hey, this can be a platform. We'll just call it level five. Right. And along the way, you know, many, many employees have joined. And I guess we probably could have put a little bit more thought into what they would all call themselves and what we would call ourselves versus just, we need an LLC. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it, you know, it kind of tells you that, you know, culture is king. It doesn't really matter how poorly I name our, our concepts, you know, as long as our consumer facing concepts uh, resonate better with the, with the end customer. I totally agree with that. I think as long as, uh, yeah, the, the brands you're working with are at the forefront and are doing well, that definitely matters more, but that's a super interesting journey. So like, how do you uh, go from telecommunications into, I mean, now you've got a franchise portfolio, but I guess it started with just that yoga uh, with core power yoga. So yeah, how do you go from telecommunications to let's be in the yoga slash franchising business? I don't think we're all that unique, you know, equate this to, you know, lots of people have sat around with a friend or friends and said, let's start a business together. I really like doing this with you. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you have some smart people who are serious about investing and, you know, know that it's not free, meaning like you don't just, you know, get a franchise or any business and things just magically occur. Um, you know, like, you, you know, 10 years ago, maybe drop an app into the app store and, you know, get a million downloads like that. That was pretty, you know, there's periods of unique times, but generally it just takes nights and weekends to get it going. So, you know, ours was actually, Charles and mine was, was actually not originated by you know us saying let's start a business together i actually hurt my knee skiing uh, operatively skiing uh <laughs> we lived in colorado at the time working for level three communications and it was big powder day and i wiped out on a huge powder day and when i was walking back up to my skis to bend over to grab my skis i twisted my knee and i had to end up getting surgery on it as a result wow. of that from just a functional movement right and so i was explaining this to charles and i you know i was kind of perplexed because you know, I'm not a big guy. I'm actually pretty live, but I go to the gym, you know, at that point, you know, four or five days a week, 5 a.m., you know, angry dude handed me towels. He didn't want to be there. I didn't want to be there. And for all that, you know, I can't even pick up my skis on a powder day without, you know, taking six months off to rehab, right? For really yeah. no reason. And it really just clicked in my head when Charles said, hey, you really should try yoga, right? It's actually much better for your body. And I think you're going to like where this heads your life, right? And, and it really started, you know, CrossFit wasn't a thing yet when we, you know, started looking at this in early 2000s and it brought into view functional movement, right? So when you're at your house on the weekends, picking up your kids, it's not like standing in front of a weight machine, right? You're doing really weird movements, right? 
And that's why you see now NFL players and all kinds of professional athletes are constantly flexing and stressing their body in different ways. And, you know, that's how, you know, sports have evolved. But, you know, so, so we got into yoga that way. I took a class at Core Power at their second studio and I thought I was going to hate it. I thought everybody was going to smell. Um, people were, <laughs> you know, doing handstands and I was like, I'm never going to get here on this. And I'm not an anti-person, but just didn't seem like my thing. But then boom, class ended and everybody was chatting and they're like, hey, let's go to a bar. And I'm like, I didn't think you guys went to bar, right? But you know, that's just <laughs> what you read and then what reality is, right? And so I got into it. And ultimately, you know, Charles had met the founder. Uh, you know, I got introduced to the founder and, you know, they needed to raise money when the Lehman Brothers, you know, blew up great financial crisis and, and we led around into them. And what we really wanted though, we led around into the franchisor, a meaningful round. What we really wanted was to be an anchor franchisee because we loved the unit model and we loved working on it, right? And so we started with one studio, right? In Oak Park, Illinois, Charles had one or two in Colorado on his own. We eventually merged them all together. But uh, we started with one studio in Oak Park, Illinois. And I remember you know, doing the lease, finding the site, being bored, driving around, building Ikea furniture, hiring people. And then you're there at 6 a.m. on Monday on the first day of class. And you're like, is anyone going to come? You know, like, <laughs> you have so much energy to get to yeah. this, you know, certain moment. And then, you know, sure enough, they did, but we wanted them to come factor, right? And you just kind of get curious about that process, right? So that's what got us on our journey. We started with one store and I lived it. I actually checked in people at the desk four days a week at 545 in the morning. And then I went to my day job. Holy crap. Wow. That's incredible. Okay. So an injury kind of forced you into core power as a customer and then you loved it. And seems like, I mean, let's call it fortuitous timing. Obviously it was a bad time for many in the GFC, but you guys saw an opportunity and took it. I mean, still though, you know, from communications, which I, I'm not sure what you're doing in telecommunications specifically, but you know, that's a totally different it is and it isn't, though. I mean, everything translates down to numbers and, and ratios and things like that. You know, from our perspective, still to this day, we look at it this simply like a big blue swim school costs two and a half to three and a half million dollars to open. It's going to do two and a half to three and a half million dollars top line at about a 25% EBITDA margin. And it's going to pay back in under about 48 months, right? And that's from our own book of franchise assets that gets published into our item 19, right? So I'm not revealing anything that's all that secret. But we take those same words about every business we invest in. And it's no different than if I go back to telecommunications, Google needs a 10 gigabit circuit from us. They are one mile from where we have, you know, telecommunications infrastructure. We got to dig up the street to them. It's going to cost $10 million. They need to pay us this much over five years for us to have this payback on it. It really, I mean, it's that simple. There's lots of, you know, complicated things and millions of decisions that have to get made you know, under the books of it. But when you ultimately decide that you like this, right, and you're curious about it, and you don't think that it's been professionalized yet fully, right? Our founders that we meet have done a phenomenal job of getting it, you know, as far as they have. But to get, you know, two units to five units into 100 to 500 units and get that consistency there, that's the real hard work to do because it, it requires capture of data, training, people, gospel, disagreement and how to handle disagreement, et cetera, right? So I don't actually think they're all that different. There is experience that comes with dealing with the different customer types, right? So in the telecom world, you have 100 customers in the world that matter that make up 80% of the spend, right? In the consumer world, it's everybody, right? And there's good and bad things about that, but I think mostly good. 
Yeah. I mean, so I, I hear you on the number side, I guess, uh, if you can figure out operation, how to dig up a trench and I don't know, uh, you know, work can with, work with governments to do that. Yeah. That does sound a lot more complicated. I'm just, you know, I'm thinking the operation side, like, you know, you didn't know necessarily how to run a yoga studio, but I think it's, I guess there's entrepreneurs, right. Who maybe they get into it and then they realize, Oh, like I have things to figure out and I've never done this before. I suppose you just are the type of guy who maybe you had the confidence. You're like, we're going to be able to figure it out, how to get customers in the door, how to hire yoga trainers versus, you know, still though, operationally, right? Totally different than digging trenches for Google. Convince landlords in, a, in prime real estate to put a yoga studio front and center. Yeah. Right. Or a swim school where we're going to dig out a pool um, and have them get concerned about it. I mean, in general, the consumer wants new and experiences and discovery. And by definition, we're going to surprise landlords with what we want to put in their space, right? And so it kind of just is, what is the next thing we need to convince them? Okay, well, we're going to put in a bar for dogs and parents, you know, pet parents into front and center real estate, right? Yeah. Well, you know why? Because municipal code doesn't allow dogs in most restaurants and bars, right? Well, so let's create one that tries to strip away a lot of those um, things that trip you up so that we can actually have a place where you know, 65 million American households can hang out outside of their house in third space, a Starbucks, you know, call it with their dog, right? And not, you know, just a park, right? It's got to be four seasons and it's got to have some nice bathrooms. I mean, these are not like difficult things to consider, you know, that uh, they're clearly first world problems, but they're, you know, ultimately you can look back at them and say, why didn't I think this was going to be a consumer staple? Yeah, that's a super interesting way of looking at it. I love the reference to the third space too. I hear you completely on the hats. I mean, there's, there is nothing out there right now that offers that, at least at a nationwide basis, maybe mom and pops and independence there are. but And the parallels there with Core Power Yoga too, because cause Core Power, you know, the yoga instructors and the students would hang out after class almost permanently. Right. We have to be like, guys, it's time to go home. Like we can't, <laughs> we can't take your safety after 10 PM. Right. Like this is nothing good happens after 10 on a Tuesday. Let's go home. Right. <laughs> For sure. But that's when you know, you've got a following, right. That you can unlock. Right. Yeah. That, those are super compelling metrics uh, and just yeah, anecdotal data points, let's say to see. So, you know, back to great financial crisis time, you get involved with Core Power Yoga. At what point does it click? Like, hey, let's do this for other franchises. Because was there a moment or how did that develop? Yeah, no, there was. I mean, we were constantly, so Core Power was, um, you know, great relationship with them over the years, but they were a quasi franchisor, more of a licensor. So they didn't really provide us services to help us run our business. So, you know, the question of, how did you go from telecom to yoga? Well, Core Power didn't really teach us. They were like, here's a flow of a yoga class. Uh, here's a couple logos. Call us if you need anything and please send 6% of revenue, right? And that was about it, right? And so we developed most of our core competencies around marketing, around pre-sales, around you know how to sell a yoga membership, what percentage of our visitors should be on memberships, where should we locate our real estate. So we ultimately had enough scale. We went from one you know yoga studio to thirty four yoga studios over five states in a you know handful of years, and we had to develop a lot of our own best practices. And so we attempted to buy Core Power. We partnered up with a private equity firm. We lost out to El Catterton in twenty thirteen, and we were like, well, that's not going to be the end of our story. We we can't you know, solely be controlled in this box of a quasi 
you know, growth pattern and no harm, no foul on the relationship. That was just, you know, how it was set up. So we sought out to go find something that we could apply all the skills we had learned against to. And we um, decided to go in or our initial thesis um, was to look for something in the kids swim space. We saw a lot of great parallels there. Took us a couple of years to frame up a deal and find the right group, but we ultimately invested in Big Blue Swim School. Our plan was originally to do corporate-owned stores there. <laughs> what happened though is is that you know stores three and five outperformed our our pro formas. We bought it when they had two swim schools. Stores three and five outperformed our pro formas by thirty and forty percent respectively. And I'm an optimist, so they were pretty good performances. And we quickly said, you know, this is probably a national opportunity that if we stick to only corporate stores and only our capital, um, we're going to miss out on a national opportunity. But, you know, given at that point, swim schools, you know, cost $2 million to open and we thought there could be four or 500, you know, that's 800 to a billion dollars in CapEx. We didn't want to lose control of a brand again. And we knew how to do most of franchising, right? And so we took the leap. We invested in some really key talent and partners around franchise development, Scott Thompson, and franchise operations. And we we just invested and we kept learning how to, how do we make third-party franchisees successful with the training and unit model that we know we're going to professionalize ourselves? And I kind of go back to, this is one of my favorite you know quotes in franchising, but Sam Meineke said, if you don't successfully put the franchisee in business that's that they can make it that's like stealing from them and we go back to that again and again and again so we're like unit model can we teach it right and then it is our responsibility to ensure that it within our power we should do almost everything we can to make that person successful now there are people who are not successful because of themselves but there are people that are not successful because we didn't help them. And given that they pay us the upfront and they pay an ongoing royalty, we want you know that long-term relationship with them for store one to be profitable so that store two is profitable so that store three gets built, four, five, six, et cetera. And ideally, a multi-concept relationship over time for those who have fire in the belly to do that. Yeah. No, I mean, that quote is fantastic. I've actually never heard that before, but I love kind of the ethos of it. Yeah, it was actually hard to find, right? <laughs> but I was like, gosh, you know, there's so many successful franchisors out there that, you know, they the industry is almost now just getting discovered that we don't know so much of the learning and history. It's almost like we need a, you know, Wikipedia for franchising and a historian that we all just fund with, you know, 0.1% of franchise fees to make sure we don't <laughs> lose the lessons of the path. Yeah, that's brilliant. And, and so when I think about your model, right, with L5, you know, you guys take and correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys, you invest in the franchisor, so you, you capitalize them, uh, which I think is important, especially given the way that a lot of the industry works, where a lot of franchisors depend on brokers who take away a, a pretty healthy portion of franchise fee commissions. So you're capitalizing franchisors, you're professionalizing, let's call it the operations as a franchisee by being an anchor franchisee. And yeah, is that effectively just the high level thesis for how you operate with <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, any you know, of your brands? Yeah, we, we operate in the consumer services space, which is large and growing, right? The consumer represents 70% of the economy. Uh, there's a, a high portion of that that goes to durable goods, but a growing portion of it going to services. And that's been a macro trend for 20 years. And, you know, it's growing, right? The consumer wants services and experiences. They want to better their lives in ways that we didn't consider 20 years ago. So we play in that space. And what we then do is we look at around our lives, where are people starting to invest more of their time and treasure. And, you know, do we 
think those can be profitable unit models. Are they already profitable unit models? Maybe, you know, they're two to five units, 10 to 20, et cetera. And we start to get to know those people. You know, do we want to work with them? Do we really think this unit model based on the numbers and the demographics and the psychographics can translate into something um, that's, you know, we can mean- meaningfully spend our time on for five to seven years? I mean, it's a, there's dollars and then there's time and effort, right? Yeah. And I always like to say that, you know, you want to get out of bed out of the morning put your feet on the floor working on problems that you're excited to solve because they're all going to be hard, right? Um, So when we do that, we find these unit models and then we do our research on the unit model and then where we think the white space is for these unit models. And we have a five-person in-house team that just looks at our white space for us and helps us analyze it and the customer. We then find out, well, Boardwalk and Park Place are available in most of our favorite markets across the country. And why wouldn't we want to own those? They're not developed yet for that franchisor, we're by no means taking all of the best sites. We're taking a small, small fraction of the best sites in the country to get the the pump rolling, right? So we've found the unit model. We found the founders and management team we want to work with. We've done our you know empirical work. And then we're invested in the franchisor and the brand. We're getting rolling and we're like, okay, let's truly look at, can we accelerate this brand with our own physical store footprint as well? And it's almost like a quasi-corporate store play. But for us, you know, we just know certain markets really well. And if we be- we have fidelity and belief that this concept can be meaningful nationally, um, and we like the returns on it, it generally allows us to go faster in our franchise growth strategy. So typically, you know, L5 will be about 15 to 20% of the system when we look at an exit for the business, but we might be 70% of the system for the first two and a half years, right? And we don't, I kind of date myself with this reference, but I watched a lot of movies growing up. I didn't <laughs> learn English through watching movies, but I watched a lot of movies. But I always go back to the Hunt for Red October, which is just a great one. And the Soviets had to like learn to turn their safeties off of their torpedoes because they were like too close, or the Americans had to turn their safeties off. That's what it was. The Americans had to. And so, but for L5, we've been doing this for so long. There are no safeties on our process. Our process is written. So as a franchisee, we can just move really quickly, right? Um, whereas a new franchisee, you know, often is having to ask the question, well, why do we need to be here? And why do, and not in a bad way, they're learning, right? But it tends to be that we're about 50% faster. If you kind of start the tortoise and the hare at the start line together, we're about 50% faster than the field, right? If we recruited somebody to build 10 people to build 10 stores, we'll get 10 built before they will. Great customer experience starts with your employees. But when you're busy with paperwork, your team suffers. Introducing Harry, the end-to-end platform that solves for scheduling, turnover, employee engagement, and compliance woes. Founded and run by passionate industry professionals, Harry is built for franchise owners. Spend less time in the office and more time on the floor. Visit harry.com today. That's H-A-R-R-I.com. I believe that for sure. And you know, when I hear you speak about kind of the model and even mentioning like a uh, possibility for an exit, right? So, you know, I think you said earlier, you had eight brands total, seven of them are active investments. And this, you know, started over a decade ago at this point. So, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, typical PE fund is, I feel like looking at a three to five year timeline for maybe flipping an investment. Do you guys seem to have a longer term time horizon? Is that accurate? Well, I'd say two things. One is 2019 is when we raised our first fund. Okay. Um, and so it took us a long time to raise that fund because about a year later, before that, we were investing out of our own accounts and with friends, you know, and family. And so we were, you know, 
doing it with you know people we knew, right? We had some great successes that allowed us to raise third party money, and you know we'd done that in the public markets before with Bubble Three and other places, right? So we had credibility to go raise a, a private fund. So 2019, we raised, we had our first close and our first fund. We closed that fund actually two years later because of the pandemic, right? So it, we had a long fundraising window. And then fund two started in 2022, right? So we were, were kind of newer to the fund space. So, you know, our first investment would have been in 2019 with Orange Theory, but we didn't make our second investment until a year later in 2020 with Restore, right? In the funds space, right? But going back to your core question, in general, we do not look at our businesses and say we can flip these in three years. We are builders of businesses. You know, I, I shared with you that we're, you know, operators in private equity clothing. We are, you know, looking at this much more like a we've got to get the short strokes in to get some momentum in the boat. And private equity is much more of a, you know, the business is already moving, the canoe is already moving, and you can get really long, powerful strokes and the direction's already set. You know, we're trying to keep the thing stable on, on the rails with our knowledge and our best practices out of the gates and accelerate them. And so for us, you know, I would say our average hold period is going to be, you know, five years plus. Amazing. You know, uh, just to give folks kind of an idea of the size, uh, you know, how much total assets raised for fund one, fund two? Well, right now we're just under 300 million under management. So we're pretty hefty at this point, but we're also building physical stores. So those are pretty high ticket, right? And so- you know, for us, our fund one, you know, was about 170 million in aggregate of total funds directed towards those concepts. Um, and our fund two, which we're still raising, you know, today is just over $100 million and it's headed towards its, you know, $250 million target fund size. Amazing. I think, um, I mean, for, for the model you got, I don't know of another PE firm that does this anchor franchisee model, well, which is why I think it's so fascinating. But yeah, I, I can totally understand, like, of course, these are more capital intensive builds, right? If, if you're going out building how many, like 20, 30, 40 locations, potentially even, or is that too high on the anchor side? Yeah. I mean, like we'll have, like we invested in Heyday Skincare in March of 2021, and we're currently sitting on 10, 12 locations, right? So in that like quick window, we open 10 or 12 ourselves, right? But we're, we're generally looking at making, depending on the CapEx per unit, we're generally looking at making 25 to 50 unit investments over a five to seven year period. Okay, fantastic. But those are some of the bigger franchise deals, you know, an established franchise or would sign, right? Yeah. And we're signing them with people that have, you know, five, 10, 20 stores, and we're committing to, you know, double or triple the size of the system. Yeah. Now, again, the unit model has to follow through, right? You know, it's got to scale, it's got to do the things it needs to do to, to generate the cash flow to, to have all those units get built. No different than the promise we make to our franchisees of like, we're going to put you in business and help you, you know, have a really good go at it. Like there's nothing that makes us happier than seeing franchisees smiling so big because their lives have changed as a result of partnering on brands that we're doing together, right? We do view it as a partnership together. Yeah. And I think one of the key things you said there is, right, the size of the deals you're doing and then at the state, you know, given the stage of the franchisor where, you know, you are committing quite a, a hefty unit amount, even though maybe the franchisor doesn't have, you know, more than three to five locations open. And like, for instance, if, you know, avid listeners of this podcast may have remembered, I interviewed the founder of GoDog. That is an L5 capital brand. So, uh, you know, I, I believe they only had about three corporate locations, right? At the time you guys invested in them. When we invested, they had two open, one under construction, and two in development. 
Okay. And I think the investment size, if I recall, is around, let's call it 15 million. It's 20, How? 20 million. Yeah. So I think I remember uh, after that episode, people, uh, you know, I got a few DMs on Twitter, like, hey, like that was super cool. You know, that founder was awesome. But they're like, what am I missing? Like, how does a brand get 50 or $20 million investment, you know, from with only three locations? So how do you kind of size that up? Because you must be very confident and obviously have the belief that you're going to grow it nationally. But yeah, at that early stage, you know, what are these metrics that say, hey, let's invest? I think that it's maybe being viewed in some ways as like, you know, a small, you know, teapot or teacup, right? When we're looking at the GoDog, you know, investment. But what we're looking at is a unit model, right? Regardless of name, I mean, brand matters for sure. And that mattered a lot to us in the GoDog investment. But we're looking at a unit model that, you know, is doing a significant amount of revenue top line and a significant amount of profitability bottom line in an industry that's massive and growing, right? And so our question is more about, do we think that that can be done again, right? And if we do, right, how much are we willing to put behind codifying and scaling that? Remember, I go back to that, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, scaling, right? And scaling costs money, right? So we want to go in and say, okay, well, can we write all of the operations manuals and do all the training videos for GoDog such that we can use those to train the employees on the store that L5 is going to open in Q3 of this year and then every store thereafter such that franchisees call us and say, that was great. I don't need anything else from you guys on how to run one of these inside the four walls and they become more profitable for us, right? But it's not like we invested in American Ninja Warrior before anybody knew what it was, right? You know, we're investing in doggy daycare and dog boarding, which are very common and there are lots of today. And we've diligenced to the nth degree. We just found the right partner and right opportunity with GoDog, right? There were a lot of conversations that happened. And this is the one that we wanted to put all the wood behind the arrow on, right? Okay. So it's almost, I mean, it's a variety of factors, I, I take it, but uh, it sounds like, you know, just the industry matters, right? The tailwinds slash headwinds in the industry. Like you guys are really factoring in uh, many different things before just obviously writing a check and committing the time and effort to building locations for a specific franchise. Well, and, and these founders, Ben and Jess, knew their business inside and out, right? And so we were confident that we could mind meld with them. Again, you know, another movie reference there for you. But we could mind meld with them to translate their knowledge and performance on those units to a consistent outcome for franchisees, including ourselves, right? And so we need, you know, talented founders with existing massive skin in the game and knowledge and care for scaling to partner with to, you know, get the best of what we do and the best of what they do together to grow. Yeah. And I don't want to ask the details of the, you know, deals you do with these founders, but, you know, if a franchise or founder is listening to this. And they're wondering about, you know, what is it actually like to partner with L5? You know, are the founders, you know, you mentioned skin in the game, right? Is the goal to have them incentivized for a long time or does it vary by deal where maybe L5 kind of does step in and really runs the show from the, as the franchisor? It really varies by deal. You know, ultimately, you know, there's not, I would say a cookie cutter approach to it. There's not a million ways to do it. You know, otherwise that'd be really difficult to transact, right? But, you know, for us, it really matters on the, industry, you know, how much momentum the business has, how defined it is, you know, how kind of like a, it appears to be push button or how much work we're going to have to do alongside the, the team to get it to where it needs to be. 
how long is it going to take? I mean, that's a really important factor in it, you know, because like Godog and Big Blue is a much longer real estate cycle than than a heyday or a Kidstrong, as an example. But, you know, there's benefits to a longer, more capital intensive real estate cycle as well with, you know, moats around your business, right? You know, so when I had Scott Thompson a while back on the podcast, he mentioned that too, that can be viewed as a moat. So yeah, can you talk more about that? Because I think a lot of franchise concepts, particularly the ones I either talk about in my newsletter or the franchisees I have in this podcast, I'd say, let's call it the majority of them. If it's a brick and mortar brand, it's, you know, a brand that probably predominantly is going into a strip mall, which could be anywhere from a couple hundred grand to six to 700 grand investment. However, yeah, can you just dive into how do you view like as a moat for a brand? Because I think it might be, to me, it was counterintuitive where I'm thinking it's harder to find franchisees who could build these locations if it's multiple millions of dollars, right? You're a franchisee potential prospect list goes down just as the investment goes higher. But uh, it seems like your guys' thesis is we actually think it's a moat in the long term. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of different ways to get to a moat in franchising. I mean, you can have, you know, relatively low cost franchise business that, you know, is massive and just has a massive brand fund that, you know, creates that moat itself. Right. And then you can have, you know, other ones that, you know, the unit model is so strong and, you know, other people just haven't really diagnosed how to put it together like that or their special sauce around how they do it. But then they eventually grow so big that, you know, they're hard to compete with again because of their moat and their location quality and their brand quality. So for us, we aren't, we don't approach it with, hey, this must be expensive. So it is a moat. That is definitely not our approach. What we are trying to do is find the right real estate to the best degree possible for each brand such that it's difficult, but not impossible to outposition it in the marketplace, right? And so you're not trying to thread a needle, but you're definitely trying to be, as you know, one of our real estate teams would all, leads would always say, you're trying to be in the right church, but also in the right pew. Are you going to the groom side or the bride side? It does matter, right? You know, if mom is driving by and she's only ever on the right side of that road, you want to be on the right side of that road, right? So because the school that she's dropping off at may only let her out going on a different street. Right. So, you know, it's just there's little things that come down to these localities that make all these decisions important. But for us, it really does come down to the returns on the unit model. We're not averse to high CapEx. It definitely makes the franchise sales process different. I wouldn't say impossible um, because there's lots of capital is like water. It seeks its level. Capital is looking for return. Right. And there are people who have larger piles of capital that don't want to make you know, a thousand different investments, they want to make a few that are meaningful and franchising is great for those. So let's just take, for example, one of the larger CapEx franchises out there is hotels. I mean, like, you know, that's it's hard to think of much more expensive ones than that, than maybe a regional franchise airline of Delta, right? Those are expensive too. But the hotel business, right? You've got to, you know, if you're stepping into a new brand by Marriott, you're taking some risk, but you know that Marriott has said, we've done a lot of consumer research there's a hole in our portfolio and they're going to go to their existing franchisee base and say, we'd like you guys to develop $10 million Indigos, right? You know, whatever it is, Indigos and IHG brand, it's not a Marriott, but I think you get my point. Yeah. Now that, that's uh, that's a really interesting way to frame it, uh, specifically, you know, capital being like water. I have a hard time keeping track of, I really should like walk around with like one of those metal counters that you count people with one day or one week and just try and figure out how many franchises I walked into or consumed from, 
right? Because it's way higher than anybody thinks, including me. A hundred percent. Yeah, I'm. I have the disease fully at this point. Where anytime I drive by a strip mall or yeah, any just brick and mortar business, I'm thinking, is that a franchise? Have I seen that? Have I looked at their FTD? It's bad. Yeah, and you know, for like a good you know number of years, I was purely a franchisee. I'm now we're a very large franchisee on behalf of our investors, but I was just a franchisee, and I say it just like that. I was just a franchisee, right? So I go to cocktail parties, and you've got lawyers and doctors and you know scientists, and they're like, "What are you?" And I'm like, "I'm, I'm a franchisee," and, and I like that. But they're like, "Oh, weird." Now let's go to the <laughs> other side of the room from this guy, right? So um, it does have like you know you're kind of feel like at some point you're like the guy with toilet paper on your shoe to some degree so yeah it's funny that is uh when i found myself in this world of franchising i did have i don't want to say bought into like the stigma but i was just you know i wasn't necessarily thrilled at the beginning of my franchising career i was like oh like how did i end up here what is this and then as i got to meet more and more franchisees you know really saw just how incredible and empowering the whole model could be on both sides and yeah, that's kind of been my goal. It's just, I, I do think like, you're right. If people aren't familiar with it, they probably get a weird vibe. Yeah, it doesn't get as much respect as it deserves is, is what I'd say. And you know what? Ultimately, I come fine with that because if it had more respect, there'd be more people here. So I'd make my peace with it Yeah. at the end of the day. No, it's a good point. No one's looking at it. You know, I, I think that, uh, you know, what's really important in franchising is, and for us, right? We have such a broad view of the consumer and how the consumer consumes and how business models and management teams approach the consumer and evaluate it. And it's funny where people get hung up where, you know, I explained to you the very top level of the unit model, right? 3 million bucks to build a big blue, 3 million top line, 25% EBITDA margin. And that like sounds really simple, right? But what's really important is like getting the big pieces down so you can start to work your way toward the highest return investments, right? And where you can get eventually with scale because you can get to your highest return investment of your next incremental customer at one already profitable business and you can see you know sub four month paybacks on acquisition cost right and why that's important is is that i explained to you like you know we're looking for sub 48 month paybacks in in non-fad spaces and we want to see sub 30 month paybacks in what in spaces that are like a bit more risky right but when you get to scale and you're starting to look at okay if i spend 50 bucks on Facebook, I can get a customer that's 90% profit, right? You're gotten to the point of the model where it's incredibly profitable, but you cannot do that from store two or store three. Um, you've got to get a platform and a team that is actually you know, working towards these things and has got a lot of the problems behind them such that you're now kind of working your way up towards the highest order, highest return issues. And that's what we can uniquely help people unlock, right? Because we built that stepping stone, you know, path to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I can see it's not something you can do from day one, but clearly at this point, I mean, you, you guys do have that platform impact. And so, you know, you have, a, I mean, a variety of brands, right? You, you've mentioned GoDog, Big Blue, Core Power, Kidstrong, Heyday. You know, also, I know recently, right, you guys invested in TU Laundry, uh, who's on the franchise side known as Laundry Lab. You know, I've known the founders reached out to me quite a while ago, just, you know, through my newsletter, Dan and Alex, and, you know, seem like great guys. What was compelling about that investment for you? You know, uh, I think it's funny. We were just talking about, right, franchisees and franchising as a whole. 
people don't necessarily give it the respect it deserves. And, he, and you know, a laundry franchise, it, it's kind of the epitome, right, of an unsexy business. But you guys made quite a big investment and, and see a lot of potential there. So, uh, yeah, what excited you kind of about Laundry Lab and, and to you? Well, I think on that one, it was really the founders that excited us first. We met them and we just, you know, we've known them for a long time now, coming on three years. And they were just so curious and so great to work with. And again, so humble. And they just, you know, kept grinding out all of their little challenges. And it, they're so good at all the little things. It took us a long time to unpack the two big unit models they developed and how they interact, interoperate in a really kind of win-win-win scenario um, for 2U, Laundry Lab franchisor and Laundry Lab franchisee and how that all works, right? And such that we, at one point, were calling it Laundry Lab. Right. And we had to remind ourselves, like, no, it's to you and Laundry Lab supports to you and vice versa. Right. So it's a really interesting relationship and dynamic. But, you know, the whole breakdown of that business is in the Laundry Lab space is that laundromat customers use that business Saturday and Sunday. Right. That is when that customer is able to go to a laundromat. To use business needs laundry machines Monday to Friday. Right. And so that's just an incredible synergy to leverage where you can get, you know, two utilizations on top of one asset towards the same, you know, ultimate goal. And Dan and Alex, you know, figured out how to do that. And then, you know, we're there really to help them make it simpler, right? I wanted to write a short butter, but I could only write a long one, right? Kind of issue. <laughs> and then secondly, scale it, right? Um, and so, you know, the scaling components are how do we do this in Tampa, how do we do this in Dallas? How do we do this in LA? There are unique pieces to it, but it all starts with, you know, you got to bring your data in, you have to have nomenclature, data dictionary, all those different things and start to build those pieces around the business. But at the end of the day, when you put the 2U business, like the volume on top of the existing Launder Lab customer, it creates a really powerful unit model and return profile. And we really couldn't be more excited about the opportunity we've got ahead of us there with, with the 2U team. Yeah, I was excited, honestly, to, to hear that partnership had formed because, uh, yeah, I definitely uh, agree. It's, it's a super compelling kind of dual concept there. And, yeah, I'm excited to see what you guys do with it. I, th I think it's going to be uh, a pretty awesome ride for everyone involved. Yeah. At the end of the day, everything we do, we, we like to focus on on things that are improving people's lives, right? So Kids Strong and Big Blue help families' lives, right? To you and Laundry Lab families and families in two different ways and two different socioeconomic, you know, classes, right? Um, and they do meaningfully uh, improve the time and quality spent together for people. Uh, and that's things that we get excited about putting our feet on the floor in the morning and, you know, of course, generating an economic return for our investors and our franchisees. Definitely. Yeah. You know, as we look, if maybe we zoom out a little bit more broadly onto L5, where do you see this going long term? You know, like, do you have any North Star or almost inspirations? You know, is there, you know, do you look at Rourke Capital and say, we want to kind of do that? I mean, Rourke Capital obviously has tons of different investments, but it largely QSR focused, right? You know, do you have any longer term ambitions for what L5 will be? You know, I think we're, at least for our medium term, hitting the scale that we want to operate at. Um, we want to be able to partner with early growth brands and founders. And we think that this is a, 
a unique part of the marketplace that, you know, while we've been addressing it for 10 years, you know, we're 10 years ahead of many, many others on addressing it. We think we can continue to outdistance a group of people in that space. And frankly, you know, we are like the consumer. We like new and discovery. And so, you know, in this space, we want to be seen as people who can help scale new and discoverable things in this massive country we live in. And, you know, look at O'Rourke and Catterton and, you know, others occupy a different space in the scale of the environment. And we're happy to have them be the next rung after level five in the capital structure, you know, placement of our investments. You know, we can't be permanent capital always for our investments. That's not how we're set up. And so, you know, we're happy to, you know, kind of just be a good five to seven year chunk, at great partnerships, good times, tough times, et cetera, um, as we grow them. That's not to say we won't grow, but right now, you know, one and a half to two brands a year. And, you know, we generally are looking at 30 a year and that's all we can really look at. So, you know, it takes a lot of work to scale these businesses and we have to make hard choices quite often, but it doesn't mean if we can't, you know, work with a brand now that we can't work with them next year and they just take on a smaller amount of capital in between. And, you know, we pay at a slightly higher valuation. We just kind of try and, you know, be transparent about what we can and can't do with concepts we want to work with and management teams we want to work with. Yeah, well, it'll be fun to see kind of how you guys evolve. And also just again, like, you know, the scale you are able to hit with your existing portfolio. So uh, yeah, Chris, thanks for coming on the show and kind of sharing, you know, with us about L5 uh, and how it all works. Uh, I think it's going to be a cool perspective for for people to hear. You know, is there anywhere online where uh, people can follow uh, Level 5 or yourself personally? Yeah, I'm, we're easiest found on LinkedIn, Chris Kenny, K-E-N-N-Y on LinkedIn and pretty easy to find and, uh, and level five there and, you know, look forward to hearing from people. Amazing. Okay, great. We'll plug that in the show notes, folks, uh, so you can give them a follow on LinkedIn and as well as Chris. And uh, yeah, Chris, thanks again for uh, coming on the show. And uh, hopefully we do this again, maybe in a few years when, uh, you know, uh, the portfolio is even bigger and you've had some more successes. Sounds great to me. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me here and congrats on your success too. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen.